Well, last week I mentioned that I was going to bring a uh, short form sheet on the attributes of God that kind of just put everything we've discussed over the last uh, few months together on one sheet. And we're not going to, I won't talk much about it, but I just want to call that to your attention. And so I would, I would spend some time just working through this. Uh, this breaks down kind of in a short definition each of the attributes of God that we've looked at over the last uh, few months. And I think it would, it would serve you well to, to understand those. And then I've put a, a Bible reference for each one of those. So we will, um, we will quiz you guys next week to make sure you've memorized this entire sheet. Now, I hope, I hope that that is helpful. Let me go to the Lord in prayer. We can jump in. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, bringing your church out, Lord. We just ask that you would uh, guide our thoughts, Lord, uh, open our eyes. We're tired and many of us are sick, uh, Lord. We, we ask that you would just give us insight into the uh, wonderful mysteries uh, that are who you are in your being and your nature. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray that you would make us excited about your truth. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, I'm, I want to do a little bit of a review for uh, those of you who might not have been here last week. We are looking at the doctrine of the Trinity, and we're broadly uh, looking at the study of the person of God, who he is in his being, his nature, and his attributes. And so we've been looking at the attributes of God, and now we're backing up to focus on the being and nature of God, and that is the doctrine of the Trinity. So as a refresher, what is the Trinity? The Trinity is the view that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God. Does this make more sense to us this week than it did last week? There's certainly still some mystery there, isn't there? Yeah. One God eternally existing as three distinct persons, and each person is fully God. And then remember, we laid out the biblical basis for this doctrine. Number one, that different persons are called God, that each person is fully God, and that there is one God. Now, you remember last week we kind of did a survey of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We said there are a number of persons in the Old Testament referred to as God. How do we, how do we make sense of that? And then by the time we got to the New Testament, we saw that the triune formula was being inserted everywhere, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then at the end of last week, we, we spent some time in John chapter 1. Remember that? Looking at the divine Logos, that Jesus says the divine word is God eternal, was in divine uh, fellowship and relationship with God from eternity past, and then was in some way also God himself. Now, as you can imagine, that really does just scratch the surface to who Jesus is. I I, I really wish that we could, I I don't want to say this too loudly because Pastor Peter will hold me to this. I wish we could take a, a few weeks just looking at the person of Jesus. There we go. <laughs> okay. All right. There we go. I shouldn't have said that. No, that, that's, it's great. It's, it's a great study because the more you look into this, the more you realize like, man, uh, my, my dad made a comment to me. You're going to look at the deity of Christ in the remaining 15 minutes of the talk last week. How are you going to do that? 
as I was preparing this week, I said, okay, you know, I think it, I think we got the point across. Let's, let's move on. And then as I sat down, I just couldn't do that. So we're going to spend a little bit more time this morning on the person of Jesus, if that's okay. So what I, what I did here, you'll see in your handout, I've got a chart and we're not going to look at this with any degree of detail, but I, I, I want to encourage you over the next few weeks, I would spend some time looking at this chart and looking at the relevant passages, but I want to, I want to just walk us through uh, somewhat quickly. So we're looking at the view that Jesus, the son is God. And what is the biblical understanding or biblical basis for holding to the deity of Christ? Well, I've got five uh, sort of quick pathways to the deity of Christ. Honors, attributes, and I'll go through each one of these, names, deeds, and seat. Let's look at each one of these in turn. Jesus shares the honors due only to God. God alone is to be worshipped. Yet what do we see in the New Testament? That Jesus is worshipped. And I've got here some comparisons. If you look at, I would really encourage you to look at the comparison passages. Isaiah 45 says of Jehovah, of Yahweh, Israel's God, that every knee would bow and every tongue swear allegiance. But where have we heard that in the New Testament? Who have we heard that of? Of of Jesus in Philippians 2, that every knee would bow and declare that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus shares the honors that are only due to God. Jesus also has the very attributes that only God has. Jesus is eternal. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing and so forth. Jesus is given the names only given to God. Jesus is called God, Lord, Yahweh, the sacred name of Israel's God. He's called the King of Kings, the Savior, the first and the last. Jesus does the very deeds or works that only God can do. Remember, we saw last week that Jesus creates everything. Remember, he was in that box on the right-hand side in our napkin drawing, that Jesus has created everything. Well, who is the only one that's created everything? God. God's the only one that's created everything. Yet Jesus creates. He sustains. He's sovereign over nature. He's the giver of life. He judges, and he forgives sins. All things that are only true of God. And then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, Jesus sits in the very seat or throne of God. The throne that God himself reigns from, the New Testament says that Jesus also sits. We see this beautiful picture in Revelation chapter 5, where the elders fall down before it says, to he who is on the throne and to the lamb, and they give both of them honor and blessing and glory forever. And it says they fell down and worshiped. So Jesus sits on the very seat or throne of God. Now, if you look at the first letter of each of these, it spells the acrostic hands. So you can remember that by saying Jesus has the very hands of God, the honors, attributes, names, deeds, and seat. You'll find the next time you get a knock on your door on a Saturday morning, Truthfully, not only will you not avoid it, you will be eager, eager to speak to these people. I mean, if you think about this, you've got somebody that comes to your door and says, hi, we'd love to talk to you about God. Will you talk to us about him? Can't right now. Got the laundry's really piling up. No, but what if we were, what if we were very equipped and very prepared so that we could go to the door with excitement to tell them 
the truth of the Jesus that they do not know. Okay, so that's, we'll leave that, uh, the deity of Christ there, and we will um, we'll reluctantly move on. So we have established that the Son is God. Now, if you've noticed, I've not spent any time on the Father being God. The reason why is that this, this isn't a particularly controversial topic. No one denies that the Father is God. In fact, if you look at Grudem's section in the largest chapter in the book on the Trinity, it's about this big. He said it's just very clear. Everyone holds that the Father is God. He just hasn't been under attack. I'm sure there would be a small you know, cult group here and there that would probably deny the Father's deity, but it just hasn't been something on the radar. And so he spent most of his time, as I have, on the Son. But we will move on now to God, the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? How would we answer that question? Who is the Holy Spirit? Outside of the context of today, you're in the produce aisle and someone comes up to you. Excuse me, can you tell me, who is the Holy Spirit? What's the first thing that should come to our minds as an answer to who the Holy Spirit is? The Holy Spirit is God, right? Now, we typically think of the Father and maybe now the Son, but is that the first thing that comes to our mind when we think of the Holy Spirit? Well, it should be. Let's look at this a little bit closer. Given the divine nature of the Father and the Son, it would seem unthinkable and even blasphemous to link the Holy Spirit next to the other divine names, if he was not so. So we, we saw last week that we baptize in what the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We see the Trinitarian role in redemption, in our sanctification, in the issuing of spiritual gifts, that all three of them play a part. That alone should tell us, okay, if the Father's divine and the Son is divine, the Spirit's got to be divine. But is he given this sort of uh, name of divinity just by a sort of guilt, by association? These two are divine. He's linked up to them, and so, okay, he must be divine. Or does Scripture give us some reason other than that to think that he is actually God? Now, these are softball questions. We, we know the answer to this we're going to look at a few examples in the scripture. We have this on your, in your notes here. Acts chapter 5, verse 3 to 5. The background here is that many people were selling uh, much of their possessions to give to the apostles, to give to the apostles for their ministry. They were selling properties and homes, and they were taking the proceeds, and it said that they were laying it at the apostles' feet to fund their ministry. But Ananias and his wife Sapphira... They weren't honest about their proceeds. They sold their property, and then they withheld some back. And let's see what happens as a result. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man but to God. So what does Peter say? By Ananias lying to the Holy Spirit, he hasn't lied to some impersonal force. Ananias has lied to God himself, thus equating the Spirit of God with God. Do we know what happened as a result of this lie to God? It wasn't, it wasn't good. This is one of the rare New Testament examples where God immediately enacts his wrath, and they were both killed. Let's look at this next one, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple 
and that God's spirit dwells in you. Now, I'll tell you, at first read, I wouldn't necessarily pick up anything when looking at this verse. But let's ask this question. Who lives in God's temple? Who lives in God's house? God. Right? If we were to say, who, who lives in Matt's house? Matt. Matt lives in Matt's house. So, knowing that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you, Paul is saying that God's spirit is God, is equal to God, equating the spirit of God with God himself. Let's look at two more here. Psalm 139, 7 to 8. David says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So David here is equating fleeing from God's spirit as the same as fleeing from God himself. If I leave from your spirit, Lord, you are still there. If I go up to heaven thinking I'm fleeing from your spirit, God, it's you that's still present. Now, what's interesting here is not only does David equate God's spirit with God, but he shows us the divine attributes of the spirit too, doesn't he? That the spirit of God is also omnipresent, just as God is omnipresent. We'll look at this last one. And interestingly, this one is, is rarely brought up as a passage to show the deity of the spirit. And to me, I think it might be the best one. Paul says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. What's going on here? This, this is saturated in Trinitarian theology. All three members of the Trinity are, are present here. Paul interchanges the spirit of God with the spirit of Christ. Look in the beginning. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, but then he switches to anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ. So the question is, Paul, which is it? Is it the spirit of God or is it the spirit of Christ that's in us? Is it Christ that dwells in us? Or is the spirit that dwells in us? What's Paul's answer? Yes, that's right. It's all of them. All three members of the Godhead are seen here and are necessary in the spiritual life and ongoing transformation of the believer. Now, this leads us right up to a significant problem. We've shown that multiple persons are called God. And we've shown that each person is fully God. These two concepts work perfectly together with no problem. There's no logical concern at all here. But what's the problem? This is polytheism, isn't it? This is the view that there are multiple gods. So far, all we've defended is that many people are called God and each of them are fully God. When you survey the cultures of antiquity... Virtually every, every civilization, as far back as you can imagine, as you can find, every culture had a sophisticated system of polytheism. They just believed in multiple gods. We think of the pantheon of gods in Greek deities where they had a, a god for every sphere of life, right? They had the god of the moon and sun and of sickness and of health and of marriage and, and many of our uh, religions today do a similar thing, don't we? 
All these small, finite deities. You think of Paul in the book of Acts in Athens when he's walking through and he sees all the little finite deities and then he picks up this last one with the inscription to the unknown God. Israel stood alone amongst the polytheistic religions. Israel from their inception was committed to monotheism, that God is one, that there is one God from the very beginning of scripture. What's the opening verse of the Bible? In the beginning, God created everything. He's not the moon God or the sun God. He's the God that made the moon and the sun that reigns supreme over everything. This truth was woven into Israel's identity. I want to drive this point home a little bit more just to show how big of a problem we potentially have on our hands here. Open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I've got the first verse on here, but I want to expand this a little bit more. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We'll look at verse 4. This passage, it's one I'm sure you're familiar with. This is called the Shema. The first two words of this passage is Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. This is the uh, number one passage ingrained into the mind of every Jew. And it's the very first passage a young Jewish boy memorizes. Let's see what Deuteronomy 6.4 says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. All these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be a frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Do you think God was trying to communicate the seriousness of this passage to the Jews? Let this passage be saturated in every aspect of your life. Why is that? Because of the temptation of all the surrounding nations, all the gods that were constantly being offered to Israel. And Israel took the offer for many of them, didn't they? And they found out that they were taken captive by many other nations because of their idolatry. We'll look at another one here in Exodus 15. It says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonder? Now, this is a rhetorical question. What's the obvious answer to this? No one. No one is like our God. He stands in a category of one. The very first commandment in Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, the wording of this passage is kind of interesting. It sounds like it could mean that as long as I'm the primary God, you can have some maybe other smaller gods, just just none that are before me, none that are prioritized over me. Do we think this is what the passage means? It's not what the passage means. What the Lord is saying here is that you shall have no other gods in my presence anywhere. And where is God's presence? His presence is everywhere. He's telling them you shall have no other gods 
period. Last one, Isaiah 43.10. The Lord says, you are my witnesses. Now, interestingly, this verse is actually where Jehovah's Witnesses get their name from. The fascinating thing is that in Acts chapter 1 in the New Testament, Jesus says that you shall be his witnesses. But they choose this one over that one. You shall be my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any God after me. What's so interesting is that the Trinity is the very foundation of the Christian faith. The earliest proclamation of monotheistic Jewish converts to Christ was what? Jesus is Lord. How can this be? Where does this come from? Why would they believe something like this given their commitment to monotheism? Well, this is what God has revealed to them. And this is what God has clearly revealed to us. And we are tasked to believe, whether we fully grasp it or not, what God has revealed to us, aren't we? Paul in 1 Corinthians 8.6 looks to distinguish between God the Father and God the Son, but maintain that they are both gods. He says, for there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. But I thought the Lord in Israel in the Old Testament was the one Lord. Paul saying Jesus is that one Lord. We have one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. There's so much more that can be said about this. I would, I would encourage you, look at Grudem's chapter on this. He gets into a lot more details into the nature between the one essence of God and the three persons and the way in which we can distinguish between the persons in the Trinity. I want to look at this for just a second. Uh, ask us to consider how we might distinguished between persons in the Godhead. If I were to ask you right now, picture in your mind, what does God look like? Could we do that? What, what, if, I, what if I added a little bit more detail? What if I said, picture in your mind what the Father looks like and maybe what the Son looks like and maybe the Spirit. I think what happens, we, we probably start off thinking we're doing okay and then our image gets kind of weirder as we go along, I imagine for God the Father, we think of maybe an older guy with a, with a beard and the son maybe a, a younger looking guy and then is the spirit maybe kind of a gray, mist, hazy figure. Is this how the Bible distinguishes between the members of the Trinity? It doesn't. When Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman and tells her what God is like, what does he say? God is what? Spirit. God's invisible. Jesus in Colossians 1 says that it says that he is the image of the what? The invisible God. Now, this is interesting and, and something I, I hadn't thought much about, but there's no physical distinction between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. They look exactly the same, particularly in the pre-incarnate state of Christ. When Jesus inhabits the body of, uh, or, or when the Son inhabits the body of Jesus, that brings in a new dynamic. But God in his nature is spirit. He's invisible and cannot be seen. So the thing that distinguishes the members of the Trinity, rather, is their relationship not only to each other, but to their 
creation and their roles in creation. And I'd like to take uh, the kind of remaining time in looking at the role of the Trinity, the importance of the Trinity in light of our redemption. Quiz question for you here. What is the most well-known verse in the Bible? I think I'm here in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. And I don't know if you've thought about this, and I, I certainly hadn't much, but do you ever find it strange that God would love someone so much that to display that love, he would kill his son? Imagine if, if I said, you know, I, re- I love you guys so much, y'all are, y'all are really a handsome bunch. I'm going to kill my daughter Harper for you. She told me I couldn't use that example, but she didn't come, so we're going to do that. What if I said I'm going to kill my daughter Harper to display my love? How does God killing his son show his love for us? How does it save us? Many unbelievers and Christians alike have struggled with this thought or with this view of the atonement, this view that this bloodthirsty God would put up his innocent son to save people. This view is called penal substitutionary atonement. It's the idea that Christ would stand in our place as our substitute and bear the penalty that you and I deserve. A former pastor by the name of Steve Chalk was so disgusted with this view, and he's not alone, that he writes this, this idea that God would send his son, innocent son, is a form of cosmic child abuse, displaying a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, he writes, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is such that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement, God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetrated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to repay evil with evil. There's a lot in that, isn't there? So the question, is the cross merely cosmic child abuse of the greatest order? Let me add another problem to this, okay, before we maybe bring some resolution. How does Jesus, one person, in the span of three short hours on a cross, pay for an eternity of not only one person's sin, but for everyone's sin? Have you thought about that? How is this? What is our punishment? We spend eternity in hell under the wrath of God. But that's not the punishment that Jesus bore. He didn't spend eternity. He spent three hours on a cross. Maybe you expand his entire life and you say a 33 years maximum. How do we make sense of this? Well, as you you possibly suspected, the answer to both of these problems is found in our understanding of the Trinity. Rather than being a, a heady doctrine that theologians discuss, it's only in light of the Trinity that we understand that it was God 
that was on the cross. It wasn't a random third party that God simply picked and said, we're going to put all the world's sin onto you. It was God himself that was on the cross. And how does Jesus on the cross pay for all of our sins? He is the infinite God that saves us. He is of infinite worth, of infinite value, of infinite power. Because of this, he can suffer a finite amount of time to cover our eternal debt. Jonathan Edwards on this wrote, Though Christ's suffering were but temporal, not eternal, yet they were equivalent to our eternal sufferings by reason of the infinite dignity of his person. The reason why Christ on the cross can spend three hours is because it was not the blood of a random man. It was the blood of God that was spilled on the cross. I have in your notes here, Acts chapter 20, verse 8. Such a great passage. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. When did God shed his blood? On a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. This was the greatest display of God's love toward us and the greatest example of forgiveness. This is what's so important about the Trinity. Without Jesus being God, there is no forgiveness of sins. No one else could have absorbed the weight of our sin if he wasn't God. And if Jesus wasn't God, what God did putting Jesus on the cross was unjust. That it was a third random, random third party that he just put the world's sin onto, but this is not what happened. Because of a Trinitarian understanding, we see that God himself went to the cross for us. It is the greatest display of God's love to undeserving sinners. So no Trinity, no gospel. Without the Trinity, the gospel simply falls apart. I want to look at, in in our last few minutes, uh, one more aspect of the way the Trinity plays a part in our redemption. My wife and I, we, we don't argue in a normal way. Okay? We have, uh, we have theological arguments. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you one of them the other day. We're sitting on the couch, and you know, I, when, you're, when you're teaching this, the stuff's just constantly on your mind, and I'm trying to think of, make sure we're saying the right thing. And I'm sitting next to her on the couch, and I said, you know, I don't think that God, in his nature, is merciful. Now, she had the same look that many of you have in your faces as you see me say that. She's taking out her phone, I think trying to call Pastor Peter and Pastor Keith, to let them know the heresy that I have just told her. I said, but hear hear me out. She says, I'm not hearing you out. There's no explanation that you can possibly offer that would justify what you just said. I said, please, just give me a few minutes. She said, okay, what do do you mean? I said, God in his nature is not merciful. I said, well, let's, let's think about that. When we say something is true of God's nature, and we looked at this when we looked at the attributes of God, this is something that is always true of God all of the time. In fact, it cannot not be true of God. So to give you an example, could God not be omnipotent? No. Could God not be omniscient? 
No, he, he is all of these things all of the time. But let me ask you a question. This gets us into some tricky territory. Did God have to extend mercy toward us? Did God have to save us? He didn't. He did that freely for us. And so it, you might look and say, well, I think you're just mincing words, but I don't think so because it, 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 when we understand this properly, I think our view of it, um, this, is, this is very helpful. So what do we mean by this? If God in his nature was merciful, that means that God would have to extend mercy toward us. That means that he would, if God was by his nature a savior, and that sounds right. I mean, I, I know that as I'm saying it, I hesitated. Should I even say this? I will be removed from the church. If God in his nature is a savior, did God have to save us? Is he bound by these things? He's not, but God is bound by his nature. So then what's the outcome? These things must not be true of God in his nature. But to, to relieve the tension a little bit, God is merciful, isn't he? And God is a savior, isn't he? So how do we make sense of that? The mercy of God must be rooted in an eternal attribute of God. Go in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. context of Ephesians 2, Paul is telling the church that our state from birth is that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses and walked according to the desires that come from being dead and separated from God. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, why? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Why is God merciful toward us? Because of the love of God. The love of God is the eternal attribute that the mercy of God sits in. Now, what does this have to do with the Trinity? Love is a necessarily relational attribute, isn't it? If we're to say that God is a God of love from eternity past, but has no one else to love, how Does God have this dormant attribute that he then, I guess, has to create creatures so that one of his attributes could be displayed? Not at all. We said that all of God's attributes are true of him all of the time. So in the tri-personality of the Godhead, the Father has loved the Son, the Son has loved the Spirit, the Father has loved the Spirit, and so forth. God has been an eternally loving God from eternity past. He did not need to create anyone to display his love. His love was always there. So because of the Trinity, this is how we tie into what we were just saying. Because of the Trinity, God is a God of love forever. And because God is a God of love, he can display his mercy freely, not out of a necessity, but freely towards sinners. And because of his displaying his mercy towards sinners, there can be salvation. So there cannot be salvation unless there's the mercy of God. There cannot be the mercy of God unless there is the love of God. There cannot be the love of God unless God exists as three persons in one. 
John 17, 4, we see this eternal display of God's love toward the Son. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. God chose to create creatures and he chose to redeem them freely. The Trinity and the gospel go hand in hand. Thank you guys so much for coming out these last few weeks and uh, y'all have a great Sunday. Thank you.